0: You're listening to Monday Science Podcast, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and health with your host me, Dr. Behija Rami abraham Happy Monday, welcome back to Monday Science. We're on episode 19 and the third episode in our dementia series. Today's episode is a discussion with Professor Adeshola Oguni, who is a clinician, neurologist, neuroepidemiologist, and he holds a faculty position at the College of Medicine, University of Ibadan, Nigeria. We had some audio um, quality issues with this episode recording, but that doesn't take away the amazing um, information and insight that Professor Oguni gives. So please bear with us. It is something we're going to um, improve and update. Uh, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed the episode. OK, so um, next on our Dimension series, we're very, very lucky to have uh, Professor Oguni joining us from uh, Nigeria. Am I right? Right?
1: Yes, you're correct. Thank you.
0: Perfect. Um, so before we get on with the rest of our conversation, do you mind just telling us a bit about yourself?
1: Well, my name is Adishola Oguni. I trained as a physician and then neurologist. And I currently work at the College of Medicine, University of Ibadan, Nigeria. I'm a professor and I've done a lot of research on dementias. Um, as well as stroke and epilepsy, but especially, but the main focus is dementia. Thank you.
0: Lovely. So I'd like to start. Um, I'm very big on definitions because I think it's very good to set the scene. So um, I would like us to go through some definitions. So please, could you explain what is dementia and then what is Alzheimer's disease? Okay.
1: Now, dementia is a clinical syndrome characterized by a decline in cognitive performance to the extent that performance in activities of daily living are impaired and the person may require supervision in the advanced stages. All these occurring in the setting of clear consciousness. So the person will not be confused or unconscious. Then can make a diagnosis of dementia. Now, Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia it's a specific type of dementia, named after a German neuropathologist, um, the last century, uh, Alois Alzheimer, who described a patient who had memory problems, and then went on to have some other behavioral problems, and eventually died uh, pretty early. And the brain showed particular aggregate of protein, amyloid in the brain. And so it's a specific type of dementia in which you have amyloid deposition in the brain, And is characterized by progressive decline in memory function before the other aspects of cognitive abilities uh, decline. So that's the difference. Thank you for that. If I may add, yes. uh, Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of dementia that we see. Um, More than half to two-thirds of cases have Alzheimer's disease. So sometimes when people talk about dementia, uh, they may say Alzheimer's disease. But Alzheimer's disease is just one type. Dementia is a bigger, is a broader term. Thank you.
0: And what's the percentage? Um, so, if Alzheimer's uh, is like the most common form of dementia, what about vascular dementia?
1: Vascular dementia accounts for in Africa by about a quarter to thirty percent of the dementias. Um, in I think that may be about the same in most most parts of the world. Um, So we have Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, and then other types.
0: Mm -hmm. And I've just realized I've gone against my own (laughs) philosophy of of definitions. Please could you give a definition of what vascular dementia is and stroke as well?
1: Now, vascular dementia is that type of dementia in which there is some form of disruption of blood supply to brain cells. It could be rupture of a vessel, usually called microbleeds, or it could be complete occlusion of the vessel. And some people have lesions in small vessels, arterials in the brain, that then cause tiny infarcts in parts of the brain. Now, the characteristic of vascular dementia is that the individuals will tend to manifest stepwise deterioration in cognitive abilities and clinical profile. So they have a vascular event, there's a decline in performance, then this stabilizes for a while, Then they have another episode, and then you have this kind of gradual, progressive decline uh, in stepwise fashion. Uh, Now, stroke on the other hand is a big disease. It's a neurological condition in which you have either a big rupture of the vessel in the brain or occlusion of vessel in the brain. And and the usual manifestation will be either uh, paralysis, uh, facial deviation, Alteration level of consciousness, neck stiffness, and uh, and so on and so forth.
0: Oh wow! So with I'm I'm particularly interested in vascular dementia, just um, for many reasons. But would the vascular event be something like a heart attack or like um, ischemic? Uh, you see, I've forgotten the term now. What's it? TIAs, transient yes. ischemic. Yes. Transient
1: ischemic, ischemic attack. Yeah. Now, yeah. a heart attack involves the heart itself, in which mm. you have. Problems with blood supply to the um, heart muscles, and that can then cause cessation of blood flow. That can result in stagnation of blood to the brain. So that can be accompanied by a stroke as well. A transient ischemic attack is what they call a minor stroke. Mm -hmm. You have occlusion or disruption of blood supply to brain cells, occurs transiently, and then the person recovers. And again, if you have multiple CIAs, the person can also go on to develop a stroke later and develop vascular dementia.
0: Wow, so the stroke element is really sort of a big connector and I know that, well I, I, I shouldn't say I know, but I'm guessing in a situation where maybe somebody has a heart attack, the focus might be so much on the heart attack that they don't check to see if there's any stroke damage, any damage to the brain, is that something that can happen?
1: That could happen, uh, especially where facilities are limited, but where you do holistic care, then you'll notice that there's something wrong with the brain as well. So you can then also detect some weakness on one side, some facial deviation, some loss of consciousness that you can't explain, neck stiffness and all that. So you may know all this.
0: Professor, I have to say, I really wish you were my lecturer <laughs> when I was studying. I'm learning so much and I'm sitting there, I'm, I have so many more questions, but I have to be professional and ask you <laughs> the question. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I could sit here and talk to you for, forever, really. Um, so, okay, so th- that's been really clear. Thank you for that overview and understanding of dementia, then vascular dementia, Alzheimer's, and the sort of relationship with stroke as well. Um, and so I read one of your articles that was, it was an article in 2018, uh, titled Experts Alert to Rising Prevalence of Dementia in Nigeria. And you were quoted at the 2018 Gabby Williams Alzheimer's Foundation, which is a GWAF, it was a lecture in Lagos, uh, where the theme was challenges faced by Nigerian families dealing with dementia, what can be done? And this is something I'm very, very interested in Um for, for many reasons but I really found it interesting that you explained that the rising prevalence of dementia in Africa in general, about the rising prevalence of dementia in Africa in general. So could you please explain the challenges uh, challenges uh, Nigerians family, families dealing with dementia uh, are facing?
1: Yes, thank you very much. Um, I must say that the rising prevalence was from a systematic review or analysis carried out by Adilouye and colleagues. So they looked at our data when we published the first paper in 1992 and over time. And it's then noticed that between the time we started, over a 20 year period, there has been about 400% increase in number of cases of dementia. It's based on calculation Uh, and that's because they've looked at prevalence studies from our parts of Nigeria and some other parts of Nigeria, and then compare the rates. Now, that in itself is a challenge. The fact that the number of cases with dementia is increasing is a big challenge for health resources. We know that in lower and middle-income countries, allocation to health is very small, and dementia demands a lot of money for care, appropriate care. So when you have increasing number of cases at that kind of rate, then it's going to overwhelm the healthcare system, and the nation may not be able to cope. So that's one problem. Second problem is providing care for these individuals with dementia. We know that home based care is what we do in developing countries or low and middle income countries. Uh, traditionally, we don't take our older folks who have dementia to institutional homes for care because of the stigma of destitution, so nobody wants to take the old person uh, to the nursing home so it means there's a lot of burden on individuals who have on family members who have to look after these individuals with dementia and in addition we don't have that many people who know about dementia so providing appropriate care could be a problem so we need to now teach them about the things to look out for and how to manage this so that's the problem then the manifestation of dementia itself could be terrible. They could be very embarrassing. Imagine somebody with dementia going to the kitchen, trying to cook and not remembering that there's food on fire and everything gets burnt. Or the gas is turned on, does not remember to turn it off and something goes wrong. Or they go into the bathroom and open up the water faucets and water floods the house. So there are these challenges that people have to deal with. So people must know about it. Another problem we have is uh, related to behavioral problems, behavioral and psychological problems of dementia. Patients with dementia are not aware of some of the things they do. They're aggressive, they beat up, they beat up their spouses and beat up everybody, and they start shadowing people all around. So these behavioral problems can really pose a challenge for people. There's also the embarrassment that goes with having dementia. When people will now be saying that, oh, there's somebody with dementia in their house and they uh, they stigmatize homes and all that. And sometimes the elderly people can even be stoned because they think they are witches and wizards. And these are problems that we have to also think about and educate people uh, on this. So there are many problems, but these are the key ones uh, that we, always think about
0: and talk about when lecturing about dementia. Mm. That the, the comments about witches and wizards, that's um, a very interesting point because I'd read a few articles and watched a lot of documentaries in general about the attitudes of people in countries such as Nigeria and other African countries to mental illness. And for example, yes. as you said, like people thinking there's a spiritual cause which can have a two prong effect of um, Austra- sort of being ostracized because they think they're possessed um, or then being taken to maybe like a witch doctor because they think that would be the cure. Um, and so what are your thoughts on this? And can we just discuss that a little bit further as yes. it relates to dementia? Because I think people outside of um, uh, countries such as Nigeria and other African countries may not really understand that perception, you know, and, and, yes. and that this is how people could think.
1: Yes, yes. This is a big problem. Uh, this is part of the elder abuse that people talk about. Um, I think the practice has gone down in recent times. But 20, 30 years ago, when there was less information about all these conditions that affect the elderly, it's not unusual for elderly people to be stoned because they keep talking to themselves, and people think that they are recounting all their past deeds. And so they may get stoned, they may get beaten up, and all that. The other problem is that because elderly people might lose their way as part of a dementia syndrome, they wander around and they won't know where they will end up. And so people mistake that uh, they're vagrant psychotics and so take them to all these other institutions and they get chained down and all sorts of things happen to them. Uh, In the big cities in Nigeria now, such things do not happen because people are better informed. And uh, I don't know what happens in some of the villages but I think it's a practice that is going down, but mm-hmm. we talk about it all the time, that people with dementia can have behavioral issues, they can lose their orientation, they can say things that they don't mean, but doesn't mean that they should be beaten up or stoned. And I think the practice is going down. Thank you.
0: Mm. Lovely, and, and it's interesting also that you touched on it, that conversation around the, um, the different health challenges in urban and rural, and even coastal um, environments, and that's something I myself am, am learning about um, with malaria, which is my area of interest. And just sort of kind of like saying, and it's interesting to see how that relates to yes. most diseases, I believe. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. That, that's um, very true. That's yeah. very true. The fact that you have differences between urban practices and rural practices—that's very true. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, And so I want to move on to your research and capacity building interests, which I find so fascinating, very interesting. And so um, I noticed that one of your interests is tropical neurology. Do you mind just letting us know what tropical neurology is?
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. I knew that would come up. Yes. (laughs) Uh, yes. Now, tropical neurology refers to those conditions that seem to be rather prevalent or very frequent, mainly in the tropical areas. And the term came about um, some papers by Spencer, um, Bruce Schomburg, Gustavo Roman, they called Tropical Myeloneuropathies. These are tropical spinal cord and peripheral nerve disorders. These are disorders that occur as a result of the type of diet people eat, cassava. And the is that ebba?
0: Uh, Cassava Eber. beans? Oh no, and I'm an ebba fan. <laughs> no, no, no,
1: no. I will explain the difference. I will okay. Explain okay. The difference. Now there are other things called lat- latherism, which is not common in Nigeria, but it's common in Bangladesh, parts of India. Uh, these are uh, chickling peas that people eat during the time of farming and hunger and, and wars and all that. So all these things contain toxic substances that affect the nervous system and result in some form of peripheral nerve or spinal cord disorders. Now, coming back to cassava. Now, the, when the cassava is not properly processed to eliminate all the cyanide, mm-hmm. either because there is increasing demand or there is haste to get the product out, so that they don't allow it to ferment well and all the cyanide to be washed out then it become toxic and so that was what led to the big study that my boss Oshun Tokun did many years ago in which he described the effect of chronic cyanide intoxication on the spinal cord and the peripheral nerves and so that's why the term uh, top tropical disorders were coined so my interest will be in those the conditions that seem to be prevalent in tropical areas but not seen in Western world. And a very few of them, they are related to nutritional uh, habits and a few of the parasites that may occur. For instance, there, is, there was something that was described uh, many years ago by a colleague in IFE in which individuals will eat um, some worms, uh, worm. Yeah, I know I could see your reaction to that, uh, <laughs> especially during the period of uh, new yam. So they use this silk wall and it contains an enzyme that affects thiamine. It was Adam Olekun who worked on that. And so they will then develop tremors, generalized body tremors. And so the old term was called shakes, which was because it was prevalent around the leisure. But we realized that it's not because uh, of Elisha disease, but because of the things that people ate. So that will be a tropical problem. So we have a few of these that we identify and then we then uh, document these so that the world can know about this. So that's the tropical neurology.
0: That's fascinating. So it's just
1: study of neurological disorders that seem to be prevalent in the tropical, tropical world related to nutrition and maybe of some of these uh, cultural habits that then result in disease.
0: That is fascinating. everyone hope you're enjoying the episode so far um just want to say a big thank you to everyone for your comments and feedback about the dementia series it's great to know that a lot of people are are learning about dementia it's increasing the awareness which is the whole aim of the series Um, and also enjoying uh, the discussions so far just a reminder that we are trying to raise uh, 500 pounds for dementia alliance international and details on this is uh, on our website so that's com forward slash podcast and there's a link to the dementia series and then there's also a link there to our just giving page where you can donate anything from as little as one pound and just to support this course also i'm sure you're enjoying professor oganee's discussion just now He's actually giving a talk on Tuesday, September 29th at 4pm. Details of this are in the um, episode description. And in this talk, he's going to be talking about the epigenetics and dementia lessons from the 20-year Indianapolis Ibadan Dementia Study. Hopefully, you can join us for that discussion as well. Enjoy. And so then, once you identify, so like, for example, with the uh, silkworm, silkworm. if that's part of sort of that region or that tribe's mm-hmm. eating yes. like yeah. their delicacy so just for the <laughs> listeners my shock at the cassava question so as I've no- I've actually put this on my Instagram my favorite food is a Nigerian meal called eba so eba negusi and eba is made from cassava so yeah. that's why I was very invested in cassava yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. But, yeah. but but for example um how do you then once you've identified that this nutritional practice results in whatever how do you then change the practice because that's something that's yes. in that team is taking away I, yes. I don't know I'm just saying but something like taking yes. away a culture a, a heritage yeah. of a yes. region yes
1: yeah now for instance what it requires health promotion and health education of the people. So you have to increase awareness that if you do not process cassava, let's say the normal process takes five days. If you now say no, you want to be in a hurry, you want to do it in three days, then there'll be problems down the road. So you tell them that that process should not be short circuited. It must be completed. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is that if you eat the gary with, like you said, you eat it with a goosey and all that with protein, then you can balance out some of the bad effects and get the body well well protected. Now, with regards to the silkworm, you now have to let them know that although this thing looks nutritious and it's a delicacy, you have to be cautious. So don't overeat it and uh, be careful. If this occurs, then come to the hospital we have remedy for it and so you'll get better yeah and and you have you will then notice change in practice it takes a while but gradually you will then notice that people do less and less of that and they they feel better doing that yeah
0: okay and so um what is capacity building as we just
1: move on to that part of your work capacity building is improvement in manpower especially specialized manpower for a particular disease. Uh, for instance, I'm in neurology, and we know that specialists are hard to come by in most developing low and low-middle income countries. So the only way is to now look for talents, people who have the abilities, and then encourage them to do research in certain areas or to study certain conditions. And that's what we try to do. Uh, so it's to just enhance the number and the quality of specialists that can manage individuals with neurological disorders. And that's been an area of interest for me. Um, The way it started off was, when I was the only neurologist a few years ago, and I had some, about 16 registrars working with me at that time. And the clinics were always very heavy in terms of attendance. And so we then decided that it's best you take individuals present with these kind of symptoms. You do that one, you do that one. And so following clinic, you take those ones. So I allowed individuals to then develop on their own, and then I'll review the cases with them. And so we then created fields for various individuals, and that has helped. Uh, It's a form of mentorship, it's a form of training. It also reduces workload on me and ensures that you can be confident that these other people have been well-trained or they read more about these conditions. And they can become experts on their own field without depending on me. And so that's how we've been able to build various areas of interest in neurology, at least in my own practice here. Yeah.
0: Lovely. And so what what have been sort of I said because the joys I've I've heard about the term capacity building, but I've not heard about it from the mentorship side. So that was really interesting. Um, what would you say has been like the joys and maybe the challenges that comes with trying to, you know build that, you know, put together that
1: capacity building. Yes. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know whether you've heard of a colleague of mine called Mayowa Owolabi. Uh, he started off uh, being asked to work on stroke. Now he's one of the leading lights in stroke. He's been winning grants. He's done so well. And so when it comes to stroke now, I leave everything stroke to him. So you do research on stroke, specialise in stroke, and he's well known. He's now a, an important figure in that. Uh, We had individuals who worked on Parkinson's disease, a form of movement disorder, closely related to Alzheimer's disease. And he also started off as an expert in Parkinson's disease, although he's moved back into stroke now. In addition, he's also done some bit of genetics in Newcastle. So he's into neurogenetics. So he's he's training others now, that's Rufus Akinyemi, and he's done pretty well. Uh, We've trained individuals in neuro-AIDS research Especially cognitive aspects of neuro AIDS, and that has also become quite a fascinating area. We had some individuals who worked on epilepsy, late onset epilepsy. It's another whole at that time, and so it looked at epilepsy in old age, um, late onset epilepsy, epilepsy associated with stroke, epilepsy associated with all sorts of disorders, and so we have individuals who've also gone in that in that direction, and that's what we've tried to do to allow people to specialize in specific areas of neurological disorders and become authorities in their own right. And it's, the system benefits. It also ensures that we can attract funding and collaborative studies. It's also good for networking. And I think I've enjoyed that. In addition, we had a grant from the National Institute of Health. Uh, that's about eight years ago on building capacity for neurological practice in Nigeria. And that grant has also helped. We had about 18 of the academic staff at, who enjoyed um, exchange visits to the US and they were also able to develop on their own right. And a few of them have become professors now. So uh-huh. it's been quite a rewarding experience for me. Nice. Yes. Yeah.
0: Nice, and, and it's that thing of grant funding, I think what I'm always, I mean, I'm not trying to convert everybody to do research, but it's so nice when people have that approach as well, because it's like research training, it goes hand in hand, um, and definitely being able to secure grant funding, you yes. know, helps uh, things. Yes. You've been involved in developing curriculum on geriatric training for developing countries. Uh, could you just talk to us a little bit about this?
1: Now, uh, the interesting thing is the demographic change that is taking place uh, world over, and especially in Africa. A few years ago, proportion of elderly in Africa was very low. But now we notice that people are getting older and uh, living longer. And so we then need to ensure that we study diseases of the elderly. Um, I was invited to uh, University of Cape Town, South Africa. Um, It was a Mellon Foundation grant. Uh, to work at the Walter Susulu Institute of Aging in Africa with a colleague of mine Sebastian Kalula and we started evolving that and then we had a few other colleagues uh, with whom we worked on on this one and so we started looking at what areas of geriatric training we can uh, put up for specialists in Africa so that that can develop as a specialist field on its own. And I'm glad to say that it's taking off. Uh, At the University College Hospital in Baden now, we have a geriatric center and we have about four trained geriatricians who are pretty good. And we have geriatricians in Nigeria. A few years ago, 10 years ago, there was none. Only those of us who are doing research on elderly people, but who are not geriatricians are the ones who were involved with the care of elderly people. But now, The situation is changing. And this is happening in other countries in Africa. So we've put up some uh, curriculum together. The postgraduate colleges have also adopted some of this. And so geriatric training is, uh, is now part of what individuals can do in Africa. And I think it's encouraging to do that. We also had a platform for research on aging in Africa at that time. We called it AFRAN and the, uh, actually the 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 link was with oxford university institute of aging then we had isabella boderi there and the professor Susan i can't remember the name now who was very supportive for all these moves we were making in africa so that assisted in bringing uh, the initial experts on aging in africa together so that we could then uh, formulate the way forward for having geriatrics as a specialist field in Africa.
0: Mm, very interesting. Um, I'm very interested in the organization. You say it's Afran. Yes. Afran.
1: Yes.
0: Okay. And so I'm just going to go back to your dementia work now. And. Um, what are the different types of dementia that you're finding in the primary care setting? So I know you'd said sort of in a general sense, Alzheimer's and uh, as the source of main, but what are you finding in the primary care setting in, um, I guess I'll be specific and say in Nigeria?
1: Okay, thank you very much. In our studies in Nigeria, we found that Alzheimer's disease is still the most predominant type of dementia. Um, but about 80% of the cases we encountered in our community-based studies had were diagnosed as Alzheimer's disease. Vascular dementia, uh, we diagnosed around, I think about 15%. And then we've described Lewy body dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies and frontotemporal dementias. And then dementia associated with depression in a few individuals, and Parkinson's disease dementia but they're very few. It's predominantly Alzheimer's disease. Now, it may not be all purely Alzheimer's disease because we did not do imaging on all of them. You could have had some small vascular lesions in the brain that could have contributed to the dementing process. But we'll say that Alzheimer's disease is number one, about 80%, vascular dementia number two, then all the others, and we can just lump them together. Dementia with Lewy bodies, uh, frontotemporal dementia, uh, the dementia Parkinson's Parkinson's disease, dementia with depression. And then we have the non-specific ones, uh, which we will not be able to characterize. Mm. Just somebody has an illness, we find a uh, cognitive problem, functional impairment, and then sleep well, that has dementia.
0: I'm interested that there's dementia with, de- sorry, dementia with depression as a separate category, just because of um, I, I think I even read somewhere that sometimes uh, patients living with or persons living with um, dementia may feel depressed as a result yes. of it. But is there is there's a separate category of yes. dementia yes. with depression? Wow. Yes.
1: yes. Yeah, that 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 was an interesting one. And initially, when we started, we we knew you have to exclude depression because that can lead to cognitive problems and all that. But then, in the DSM-4 that we used, dementia with depression uh, is is, 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 a, is, a simple, is a single entity. Until so we diagnosed depression in them, and if they had no other reasons for their dementia, then we then said this was dementia with depression. Mm,
0: yeah. Wow. And so, what have you found in your in your research and your findings for the risk factors, specifically for I would say, well, I'm going to just group and say dementia, the dementias for people of, um, well, migrant African populations or people of African descent, because I think yeah. this is something that is I'm I'm very intrigued to know from your perspective as somebody who's based uh, in Nigeria but has done work across the board, because there's a big issue at the moment of understanding of what what the risk factors are for Mm -hmm. black people
1: in Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Thank you very much. Now, a few things came out from our study. The first one is age, that the risk of dementia increases with age, and this is universal. And uh, that hasn't changed from any study. Second one is association with female gender, and that has been consistent in all our studies. And we adduced that to the fact that women live long- and so the age factor comes into play. And the second possibility is the fact that the traditional women had less education than men, because at that time, most parents will send their sons to school and let yeah. their daughters at home to do chores and all that. Yeah. So we felt that could have contributed yeah. to that. So, so those two are clear. But in addition, we've now shown that hypertension increases the risk of dementia. Again, we are not the first to show that. This is fairly consistent. And some people have even said that it's midlife hypertension that causes that. So that if you want to do anything about that, make sure that in midlife, that uh, you control blood pressure very well. Uh, We found, when we started our studies, apolipoprotein E was a genetic substance that affected cholesterol transport into the brain in the brain and associated with amyloid formation in the brain. When we started, we found no association with ApoE, the E4 allele the homozygous. But subsequent analysis has shown that that is also a risk factor for dementia. At the time we started, in Western, Western countries among African-Americans in South America, ApoE was a risk factor for dementia. So it was in Africa alone that we said it appeared not to be a risk factor. But that notion seems to have changed with time. And we think that is something that we should look forward, look into in future studies. Then um, we think that we found one or two things that are protective. Uh, social involvement tends to reduce the risk of dementia, whereas social isolation tends to increase the risk. And again, we felt that the African, traditional African way, family setting in which you have multiple generations living together, appeared to be very protective. But now that things are breaking down with people going abroad and all that, things might change. So that might then emerge as another risk factor. So those are the ones that had come out from our studies. But uh, I'm sure you are aware that I'm part of the, I was going member of the Lancet Commission, uh, and that just published uh, in the latest on the risk factors for dementia. And we've shown that air pollution, head trauma, education, hearing impairment are factors that will also increase the risk of dementia. And uh, it's important that we must put this in our public health Uh, advocacy and uh, policy briefings that these things should be looked into so that we can reduce uh, the risk of dementia. According to the Lancet Commission work, we can reduce about 40% of the dementias. And this is very important in developing countries where most of the cases of dementia are likely to be in years to come. So if we can reduce 40%, then we will reduce the burden on health resources and life will be better for everybody. So wow
0: right. I'm, that going is to, the, um, I'm going to um, find the because it, it's in the Lancet, isn't the Lancet neurology your article yes
1: yeah it, I'll it, put, Neurology it was released um, July July 30 yes July 30 yes
0: yeah so yes. I'll put a link for that article in the episode description as well um yes. so that it can be shared. Um, and so how, I don't know if you, if it's too soon, obviously, as we know, we're currently in a pandemic situation. Um, yes, COVID-19 is is prevalent. So I don't know if already you have any data or evidence, even from your practice, on how COVID-19 has affected dementia patients in uh, Nigeria or anywhere, anywhere, other countries where you've got those sorts of engagement. Yeah,
1: most of the data or information from these had been obtained from the Alzheimer's Disease International. They have uh, weekly or twice weekly, no, every two weeks, uh, bimonthly webinars to talk about the state of COVID-19 and the plight of dementia patients. And again, incidentally, the Gabby Williams Foundation, Alzheimer's Disease Foundation, I also had a webinar uh, sometimes in about, about June on the effect of COVID on dementia care. And that will probably be the reference for us in Nigeria. I don't have any hard data on the effect of COVID infection on the dementia. Again, like we said, most patients with dementia are managed at home. And during the COVID pandemic, when it was quite severe, there was a lot of restrictions, a lot of lockdown. So patients were managed at home and many of them were not allowed to come to hospital uh, for fear of uh, getting disease and dying. But generally, we know that social distancing will affect care of demented patients uh, because they are individuals sometimes who require a lot of attention and all that. And if you have to maintain a distance, that's a problem. Second one is when you wear masks and they can't recognize you, these are individuals who already have problems with perception. So again, they think they are dealing with strangers and that is also not good. Uh, The third one is because they are prone to um, acquiring the COVID infection because of pre-existing condition, you have to be careful with them. So any fever, any cough might be mistaken for COVID infection and there's a problem. The fourth problem is that in developed countries, there's a lot of telemedicine in place. Uh, People use a lot of technology we don't have this assisted technology in developing countries. And that again affects care of individuals who may have COVID here. Um, we don't also have lo- a lot of drugs for managing them. Donepezil uh, the is perhaps the only one that is available. Yeah. And it's not all, all individuals who can afford that. So we have to look for other ways of managing individual's dementia during the COVID pandemic. And then, then family members, you have to be sure that they don't have disease they don't bring COVID from outside to infect them. Uh, that's also a problem. And people who use paid health workers and domestic aid, you also have to be sure that they don't bring disease or other problems from home and create problems for individuals with dementia. So it's been kind of a tactical situation in which you protect the individuals with dementia and ensure that uh, you don't infect them and there is no cross-infection the other way as well. Uh, While trying to maintain some element of care for these individuals.
0: Mm. Wow. Well, believe it or not, we're coming towards the end of the uh, the concluding part of the interview, and. quite sad I feel like every time I'm this dementia series has been very interesting um just learning from different experiences different people and I honestly feel I could keep talking forever but I'm trying to contain (laughs) but uh, I hope uh, I hope you'd you'll come back um to the to the podcast and we can talk more about many of your research areas in particular I would actually be quite interested for you to come back and talk about the tropical um, neurology, just especially that, just to focus more on that um, nutritional aspects of things, it's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so okay, good. <laughs> um, and so, so for you, in your, with all your different professional hats on, what does dementia mean to you? Okay,
1: thank you. That's a tough question to answer. Uh, dementia is an interesting and fascinating disease study it's a tough condition to manage it's a condition that if care is not taken can reach epidemic proportions in developing countries and that's why our efforts should be directed at prevention looking for the risk factors and intervening appropriately before the brain is damaged irreversibly uh, it's interesting because there's a lot of science to it our collaboration with the uh, with colleagues in Western countries has enabled us to do a bit of uh, basic science research, but a lot more is needed. Uh, I was list- listening to some webinars recently on the genetics of dementia, and we think African can contribute a lot in that area. Uh, yes. yeah. So that's an area which I think should develop with time. And fortunately, Rufus Akemi that I talked about earlier who is a genetics expert in molecular biology, is getting involved in that kind of study. I think those are areas. I think it's obvious that epidemiology is not going to solve the problem anymore. We've shown that initially we said prevalence wasn't as high as in Western countries. That has been reversed now with the increase in number of cases and the fact that prevalence rates in African countries are as high as in the rest of the world. A E that we said was not a risk factor before has become a risk factor. So gradually, it's going to be like a global village that the dementia in Europe is the same in Africa and all that and there are no differences. And so, but while they have resources for managing patients overseas, we don't have such resources in Western countries. And so we need to work with government. So we need to work with policymakers to ensure that dementia is on the agenda of especially geriatric uh, care because everybody wants to grow old and we want to grow old without any dementia. Um, Dementia deserves the attention of government, dementia deserves attention of experts, dementia deserves the attention of researchers, and I think we need more people to show interest in this field of research, thank you
0: and so what would you want our audience to know about healthcare professionals and academics and those you know sort of people interested in intervention what would you want our audience to kind of take away from people such as yourself who have got that clinical that academic that research experience Uh, what would you want them to take away like as a message
1: i think the brain is a unique yes the brain is a unique organ and it has to be taken care of Uh, one of the end results of uh, damage to the brain or disease of the brain that is not well taken care of is dementia. And so dementia has div- devastating consequences because you require help from people, you require a lot of money for drugs and all that, and developing countries do not have such resources. So we must emphasize that brain health is very crucial. So we must look for eight ways in which we can increase cognitive reserve, reduce brain inflammation, ensure proper cognitive functioning through proper nutrition, prevention of pollution, education of people, and prevention of traumatic brain injuries. These are things that can damage the brain and result downstream in dementia. And so we need to be aware of this and preach the message that brain functioning is key for human development. And thank you very much.
0: Thank you. And so the last question um, from everything we've spoken about, everything, what would you say would be the key take home messages?
1: Yes, the key take home messages are the following. Dementia is a rising global problem, and particularly in developing countries. With proper effort, we can prevent up to 40% of those dementias and efforts should be made to ensure that we, we attack the risk factors and reduce the chance of individuals developing dementia. Individuals who have dementia need to be well taken care of, and this can be done in the home setting, but family members must be aware of the various ways individuals can manifest and be ready to deal with some of the challenges That we've enumerated can occur as a result of the disease. Um, The world is together in terms of looking after patients with dementia, looking at what are the factors underlying, how to make life better for them, and how to ensure that we keep the numbers down.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on the Monday Science podcast. Make sure to visit our website. Uh, Details are in the episode description where you can subscribe to make sure that you never miss the show. Uh, So catch up with you next week. Bye.